Greetings, believers and non-believers, ye faithful and ye skeptical. Uh, You're listening to Tangentially Speaking with Christopher Ryan. That's me. This week's guest is Michael Shermer, really interesting guy, a very prolific author, uh, editor, and founder of Skeptic Magazine publisher, I should say, of Skeptic Magazine. Uh, He writes a column for Scientific American. Uh, He teaches a class at uh, Chapman University, Skepticism 101. He's the author of Why People Believe Weird Things, Why Darwin Matters, The Science of Good and Evil, The Moral Arc, and the book that is coming out this very week, Heavens on Earth. The Scientific Search for the Afterlife, Immortality, and Utopia. Uh, I'll just read a little bit uh, from the Amazon page here. In his most ambitious work yet, Shermer sets out to discover what drives humans' belief in life after death, focusing on recent scientific attempts to achieve immortality by radical life extensionists, extropians, transhumanists, cryonicists and mind uploaders along with utopians who have attempted to create heaven on earth uh interesting uh sort of conjunction there between people who are trying to live forever and people who are trying to create some sort of afterlife here on earth in in the sense of utopian communities Hmm. Uh, for millennia religions have concocted numerous manifestations of heaven in the afterlife the place where souls go after the death of the physical body. Religious leaders have toiled to make sense of this place that a surprising 74% of Americans believe exists, but from which no one has ever returned to report what it's really like. So that's this week's um, guest, Michael Shermer. He's been on the podcast uh, once before, I believe. I really like the guy. Uh, He, you know, the, the sort of, common complaint the sort of easy shot um that one takes at the sort of radical atheist community is that their atheism has become a religious dogma and that they're um this is something that uh, reza aslan uh talked about in a recent episode Uh, but michael Shermer is not guilty of that uh he is to my mind very open-minded, very uh, willing to to entertain the possibility that he's wrong about things. So he's not the kind of eye-rolling, disdainful skeptic that um, a lot of that that, that that movement attracts, that sort of personality, that, you know, people who think if you don't agree with them, you're just too fucking stupid to understand. He's not like that. And I appreciate that about him. So um, I think I'm probably a fair bit more, um, I don't know if the word is spiritually inclined or, or yeah. because it, it's funny. I mean, I, I think, I don't know if this is true, if religious people also consider themselves to be skeptics. You know, it, it seems like the assumption is that faith is something that is not real because it's not experienced. And yet I think a lot of people 
of faith experience faith. They experience a transcendent quality in their lives that they refer to as faith. They refer to as the presence of God in the lexicon I'm most familiar with. Um, And so it's not really accurate to say that they're believing in something imaginary because they are experiencing it. And to uh, limit your belief in what exists to what you personally have experienced is actually a pretty sort of reductionistic rational approach to things in a way. I don't remember if it was on mic or maybe it was after we were speaking and we were talking about um, ayahuasca and um, Michael said he had never he had never um, tried it but he was open to the possibility and you know he said maybe uh, I would have some transcendent experience I would feel like I was in the presence of uh, other beings um, some you know uh some some something in another dimension or so on um but of course that would just be my experience that wouldn't mean that they really exist and i thought wow that's that's such an interesting pivot there you know like it's your experience but that doesn't mean it exists well uh what exists outside of experience it's the you know does the tree falling in the woods nobody hears it does it you know did it make a sound well if you define sound as the vibrations going out from that physical moment then yes it made sound but if but if sound requires someone to hear it if sound isn't just the vibrations but it's the vibrations landing on an eardrum then it didn't and i think that a lot of our experience is a, includes the participation of the experiencer. I'm, I sound like I'm just talking bullshit here, and maybe I am. But my, what I'm trying to say is I, I'm, very, I'm very interested in things like placebo, and, and we talk about that here, how it is... There's this line from Philip K. Dick, who was a science fiction writer probably most well-known because he wrote a book called, I mean, it was a short story, I think, called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And that story was the basis for the movie Blade Runner, which was, there was just a remake of it recently, which I haven't seen, but my hair is really good. Um, Anyway, he was a very interesting guy, very very sort of uh, thinking outside the box. And he... He has a famous quote where he says, reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't disappear. So he's saying reality is that thing that doesn't require your belief to exist. And yet, so much of reality does require our belief to exist. And when we stop believing, it does disappear. But that is reality. For example, love. If you don't believe in it, it's not there. But if you're open to it, it's fucking everywhere. Uh, Placebo effect. 
it's real. It's so real that it's one of the major problems confronting pharmaceutical research. Um, it's huge. Hypnosis. It's real. Uh, they're, they're, and religious faith is real. It, it has tangible effects on people. It changes their uh, expected longevity. It has physiological effects on their um, blood pressure and uh, overall health. So it's interesting, this, this intersection of belief and reality. And, uh, and the question experience and reality. I mean, if you experience it, doesn't that kind of mean it's real? I guess not. I mean, you experience magic tricks and they're bullshit. But you see the guy cut the woman in half. You experienced it, but it's still not real. I don't know. Whatever. It's a good conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, let's see. I wanted to thank recent Patreon uh, subscribers by name. I'm not going to go down the whole list here, but I, I just want to read some names every once in a while. There was a bit of a hiccup with Patreon. I lost a bunch of supporters in December because of Patreon's fuck up with changing their policy and trying to gouge the small contributors, which I then alerted you to. And then a lot of you, uh, you know, got you left Patreon. So normally my Patreon support goes up a little bit each month and it's a wonderful thing to see. And in December it dropped and, um, I don't take it personally. I know it's because of Patreon. But anyway, they reversed their policy. They're no longer going to stick it to the small donor. So if you're tempted to give me a few bucks a month or whatever, I greatly appreciate it. And the processing fees come out of my end, not your end. And uh, that's the way it should be. So um, I invite you to come back to Patreon if you've left or if you're on the on the fence as to whether or not uh, Patreon makes sense. I really appreciate any and all support that I get there. So Ryan, Paul, Scrooge, Scrooge McDuck. I don't think that's your real name. Ashish, Stanton, Nate, Leopold's ghost. I don't think that's your real name either. Mark, Mason, Telmo, Donald, Brian, Matt, Suzanne, Josh, Fritz, Christian, Aaron, Denilyn, Jeff, Trey, Chris, David, Jay, Roz, Hunter, Curtis, Gerard, AF. Oh, that's, I think, that's uh, an email address there. Philip, James, Nero, and uh, let's see, a couple more. Samantha, Damien, Stuart, Liam, Miguel, Miguel, you have a cool name. Uh, I won't read it. I don't, I don't want to read people's entire names. Maybe they don't want me to. Uh, yeah, Tattoo. Some really cool name. Asaf. Clifton. Max. Jason. Lisa. Thank you, all of you people and, and the people I'm not naming. I appreciate it all very much. It's uh, It's good to know there's a budget so I can afford to drive around in Scarlett Johansson and fly places and do these podcasts. I uh, was just up in the San Francisco Bay last week around New Year's. I recorded two podcasts up there that are, uh, they're so good. They're so good. Both of these, these people are just 
fascinating. Steve Silberman, who wrote a book about autism uh, called Neurotribes. It's a best-selling, uh, it's, you know, award-winning science book. Really good. Um, and Bruce Damer, who's a, a, a multidisciplinary scientist who, among other things, consults with, <coughs> excuse me, consults with NASA about um, like where to land the Mars aircraft that, or the spaceship that's going up there. He works in spaceship design. He's uh, he's a fucking super genius, really cool guy. Uh, and it's so nice to be able to go to someone's home. I went to both these guys' house, see how they live, you know, be, you have a different kind of conversation with someone when you're sitting in their kitchen than you do if you're both staring into computer screens. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't know. I might get into it a little bit because there's some, there's so many interesting people that I'd love to be able to talk to and we're just not going to be in the same it's it's really hard to like get in the same place at the same time, but I I avoid it. I avoid the remote recording when I can, and your funding really helps me to do that. Um, okay, what else? Uh, Amazon, of course, I appreciate the support through Amazon, and I'm going to start doing a thing where uh, I think I'm going to pick something every month. And if you bought that, because I get these reports that show what people bought, but it doesn't say who bought what. So I'm just going to pick some some random thing that somebody bought. And if that was you, send me an email and I'm going to send you a hundred dollar gift certificate to Amazon. All right. So here's how it's going to work. Did you buy a pottery wheel clay boss? For $739.48 in December through my Amazon affiliate link at chrisryanphd.com or tangentiallyspeaking.com. Did you buy that? Because if you bought that pottery wheel clay boss for 700 and some dollars on, let's see, what's the date? December 18th. Then send me an email. Just find that Amazon uh, email that they sent you with your receipt. Send it to me at, uh, send it to ChristopherAssistant at gmail.com and I'll send you a $100 gift certificate. And if you're rich and you're like, hey, I don't need a hundred bucks, just tell me that and I'll pick someone else who might need a hundred bucks or you can tell me, give it to a homeless person and I'll do that. I'll do whatever you want with that hundred bucks. Um, but I'm going to do this every once in a while just to, uh, cause it's a fun way to call attention to the fact that I have that micro, my, um, that Amazon affiliate link thing there. All right. That's enough for me. Let's get to this conversation with Michael Shermer. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, and I hope you had a good uh, new year transition Welcome to 2018, ladies and gentlemen. It's going to be a wild ride. Here we go. Radio Mano Papachango.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm uh, in my living room with Michael Shermer for the second time. The return of Michael Shermer, the second coming. <laughs> second round. <laughs> the bonus round. The bonus round. So uh, I'm going to release this uh, after July, uh, January 9th when your book is out. The book is called Heavens on Earth by Michael Shermer, New York Times bestselling author. The Scientific Search for the Afterlife, Immortality and Utopia. Uh, so we're going to get talking about that in a minute, but in, uh, in the interest of transparency, I'll say that we're recording this in December on a day when Michael had to drive down through fire, <laughs> yes. literally through a hellscape to get here <laughs> from Santa Barbara. Right. Since I write about heaven and, and hell in my new book, I was, I was thinking driving down here, it's like, this must be what hell is like. Actually, I just started... Southern uh, California. Yeah. I, well, I just, I just started uh, Daniel Ellsberg's new book, uh, The Doomsday Machine, where he yeah. talks about nuclear Armageddon. Yeah. And, you know, he was one of the architects of this under the Kennedy administration that he was uh, tasked with uh, working with the Rand Corporation of figuring out how many people would die. And, you know, the, the, the lower boundary was 275 million. Right. And, uh, and the upper boundary was, you know, half a billion. And that's from the initial effects, not from the firestorms created. What, and the, yes. The and that clear winter. That's right. The food, right. You right. Know, all the. So that's why I was thinking about this, you know, driving down the 101 between Santa Barbara and Ventura, you, you couldn't even see the sun and it was just smoke and ash falling on the cars. And, you know, the fire jumps over that huge 101 freeway. It's like, this is what it would be like everywhere. Yeah. You know, in every city would be just, and you can't breathe, you can't function. You can, you know, you try to just walk, you know, to the car from the house and, and, you know, and you could just feel it coursing through your body it's terrible so wow yeah we don't we, we need to figure out that it's the it's the only term the, the only time i'll uh, grant the term existential risk yeah. you know, people use this term fr frivolously you know mm. like isis is an existential risk or ai is going to spell the end of you no no come on but nuclear winter you know this this could do it what about uh, meteor impact well, yes, but that's it, it would have to be huge and it would be, you know, it's a pretty highly improbable event. But yeah, that could do it too. Also, uh, like the Toba explosion. That was, right. That was pretty yes. serious. Yeah, yeah. 70,000 years ago. But in terms of like a human made things that that we have something oh, to, you know, okay, terror, yeah. terrorism or artificial intelligence, right, those right. kinds of things that we're doing. This is the one that, even though we've reduced the nuclear stockpiles by about 80% since Ellsberg was writing uh, back in the day. Still, that's you know twenty percent. That's you know, it's about ten thousand uh, nuclear uh, weapons ready to go. It's slightly less than ten thousand, maybe seventy five hundred. That's enough to still trigger a nuclear winter. Sagan had pegged it at about a thousand. You need less than a thousand worldwide to avoid nuclear winter. A thousand nuclear w weapons total. Well, and but then it depends on the the megatonnage or whatever the the right. explosive impact and right. each one. Yeah, I mean, we have enough to destroy the Earth multiple times, yep, right? Yeah, And then so do the Russians, and at this point, the Israelis and the Chinese and, the, you know, the Pakistanis and the Indians. So as a scientist, because, I mean, this is this is your bailiwick, right? A word I've never understood, but I've always found interesting. <laughs> my wheelhouse, my... <laughs> wheelhouse, I get it. It's yeah. a sailboat, right? It's your <laughs> right. wheelhouse. But your bailiwick, what the I fuck is a I bailiwick? Don't I, don't, I don't even know what a bailiwick is. <laughs> Uh, it's funny how we use words that we don't understand, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but uh, I, I was just thinking as you were talking, like, 
because I, I, I'm up to my neck, as I told you, I'm, I'm uh, editing this manuscript, so I'm, I'm very um, sort of uh, steeped in this argument that I'm making against civilization, essentially. And uh, but the skeptical scientific viewpoint sort of um, is 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 in a sense our our origin myth of, mm -hmm. of civilization in a way. It's it's a very central principle that there is truth and there and yep. the, the science is leading us toward a better place away from a correct a less comfortable and yep. secure place. But but. The further we get, the closer we are. I mean, now we're at this point where we, it's not just that we can destroy the planet. It, we're, I mean, you've heard these stories about the guy who dropped his wrench in the missile silo yes, in Kansas. Right. I mean, right. we're, and, and Daniel Ellsberg talks about how close we have come. Many times. Many times. Yeah. I, he, I heard him on, uh, I think it was on Fresh Air the other day, talking about this new book. And he was talking about how I think it was during maybe during the the Q, Cuban Missile Crisis that there was a they were dropping depth charges around these nuclear Soviet nuclear subs oh, right. and one of the um, sub commanders decided to launch a nuclear torpedo to take down the aircraft carrier in this group oh and the the situation was the two officers directly under him the three of them had to all agree one did oh. and the third one didn't and that was the right. only thing that stopped stop them that, from yeah. launching a nuclear wow. torpedo i don't know that particular story that's yeah there's dozens like that well that's it so how many close calls does it take before it right. happens right you know just from a purely statistical perspective. well that's right yeah so it's a calculation um, we can't go back to, you know, the Paleolithic days. That's not going to happen. So the question is, how can we move forward and reduce those kinds of risks? And that's what I think scientists do best, is calculating those kinds of odds and then somehow convincing politicians to follow along. So, you know, I'm slightly worried about Trump with North Korea because, um, he, you know, he, he keeps saying, well, actually, they all say this, nothing's working with North Korea. Actually, it's been working fine with North Korea. We haven't had any problems. And, you know, he's not a suicidal terrorist that thinks he's going to, to Valhalla with 72 virgins if he nukes the, the planet. He, he, you know, he's an, assumingly he's an atheist because he's communist. Uh, so he wants to live and, and have his, his say at the table with the big boys. So I don't think he would do anything. Let him have his nukes. So from an atheist perspective, is communism a superior political system? <laughs> no, it's a terrible political system because you have to kill people to <laughs> and keep them impoverished and, and enslaved to maintain your power. So that's no good. Uh, <laughs> I just like the idea of not thinking that, well, if I, you know, if I nuke the world, I get to go to heaven. Yeah. That, that's, you know, that's the one thing that concerns about ISIS getting or any terrorist organization getting uh, nuclear weapons um, but even so let's say in terms of that existential risk let's say ISIS or Al-Qaeda got a, 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 a dirty bomber a nuke and, and snuck it into New York Harbor and and, and killed two million people. I mean, is the president of the United States going to turn over the keys of the White House to, uh, you know, one of the terrorists? No, that's, you know, it's not going to put an end to the United States, much less humanity. It would only, it would only be if there was a massive exchange uh, with someone like Russia. And, and I don't think Putin would do that either. You know, the problems with North Korea is that the, the, the options are all, you know, worse. The further down the list you go, the worse they get. Doing nothing, as bad as it seems, is really the best option on the table. Uh, just keep 
turning up the screws of economic sanctions. Yeah. You know, war is, is outlawed. It's illegal as of 1928. Not that that did, did anything, but the, you know, the Paris Pact, Peace Pact outlawed war. You can't uh, technically start a war. Again, that, that, that technically. has to, technically. Yeah. Um, so ever since then, there's a, 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 another great book about this, about outlawing war called The Internationalists. And I just wrote about this in Scientific American that um, the strategy has been um, instead of doing something to a country for um, for their bad behavior, just don't do anything with them anymore. Just remove all interactions with them. We're not going to trade with you and so right, on. Right. And and sometimes that works. Um, not always. You know, it doesn't work. Doesn't work with the so with Russia, for example, because they're too big. Or China. It wouldn't work with China. So it's like taking a time out. Yeah. Yeah. Instead, we're just, instead of actually hitting a kid, you just make them go sit in the corner. Right. So it, 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 it's, it's worked with Iran so far. It's kind of worked with uh, North Korea, uh, except for the fact that China keeps trading with them, so they, don't, they still have enough money. Uh, the idea is that they would just... Oh, boy, there we go. It's a sign. The winds, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're ghosts. <laughs> anyway, so... Um, yeah, but let, let, let's get back to the, the, the sort of deeper philosophical question where... Is it progress if we've moved from a place where we, where there really was no man-made existential threat to life on Earth, to a place where there is a significant man-made existential threat to life on Earth? Not to mention overfishing the oceans, all the plastic, all the pollution, the fracking fluids going into the aquifers, blah, 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 blah. Yes, yes. Not to mention all that, right? Just talking about this one particular way that we have placed all of humanity in risk is that really progress well yeah i would i would argue that the way to look at it is that we've made so much progress in so many other areas including in some of the ones you just mentioned Uh, just the shift from physical uh, products to digital products for example you don't have a huge gigantic stack of plastic uh, uh, albums here. You don't even have a stack of CDs here. You don't need a stack of anything. You can, the, all the music now is on, on, a, on a digital platform. So it, t- it takes no space and it uses no um, raw materials to produce. And we've been making that transition more and more to other areas. And, and so that, that would be a sign of progress, for example. Um, you know, it's just a matter of time now before all cars are all electric and self-driving and so on. But is that a fair analysis if you say, on the one side, we've got, you know, we don't have CDs anymore taking up space on our bookshelves. On the other side, we've got the potential destruction of the planet i mean <laughs> yes. talk about so, cherry picking yeah I'm, I'm cherry picking just just to kind of put things in perspective yeah in, in most categories we've made huge progress just just the epa and what they've been able to do uh but the ap epa is being defunded right now. yes yes that's a that's a, a step backwards <laughs> yes for sure all right i'm not you gonna know, i'm not gonna try to pin you to the wall you know, it's, here. A, it's just... three steps forward two steps back okay so back to the, the nuclear problem yeah. Again, we've reduced the, the world stockpile by 80% since the mid-1980s when it hit its peak at, at about, I think it was about 70,000 nuclear weapons down to about, you know, about, well, it's about 90% reduction down to about 7,500 nuclear weapons now. So that's progress, even though, it, you know, it's yeah, the, the risk is kinda, still there. It's kind of, <laughs> it's the difference between being blown to a billion pieces and being blown to a thousand pieces. <laughs> yes. I don't really know right. if that's progress. Here's a bucket 
of poison or a mug of poison. <laughs> it seems, They're both deadly. It, it, it seems deadly, yes. Yeah. But but at what point would you would you prefer we go back to, and, and still keep our dentistry and medicine and well, see this. You know, see, all this these stuff. are the arguments. I mean, you and I maybe when when civilized to death comes out, you you and I can have a, a podcast where you interview me because those are the arguments that I'm I'm addressing in this. For example, hunter-gatherers didn't have dental problems. Most of our dental problems, the vast majority of our dental our problems diets, yes. come from our crappy diets and yeah. also from the fact that our jaws have changed shape because the jaw, very interesting, I didn't know this till I was researching this book, but the jawbone grows outward in response to pressure that's put on the, the teeth, the jawbone itself in the developing child. So when children eat like meat, like strong meat and yeah. you know, nuts yeah. and things where they're working their jaws, their jaw bones grow longer and their chins are more prominent. Huh. And Instead so their of teeth of aren't milk. crowded. Yeah. yeah. So we give kids all this mashed up crap. Right. They don't right. chew anything until right. they're seven or eight years old and then it's cheese doodles. And <laughs> so they end up not right. only with rotten teeth, right. but also with the mis misshaped jaw bones. All sorts of stuff like this. Or people say, oh, what about, you know, vaccines and tuberculosis kills? Them. There was no fucking tuberculosis in prehistory. That jumped over from cows. There was no influenza. You know, it's so many of the things. Right. That it's like arguing that, you know, well, there were no seatbelts in prehistory. There were no fucking cars in prehistory. <laughs> right. It's, it's, I get but, so frustrated with some of this stuff. Yeah, okay. I mean, these are all fair points but anyway we're not here to talk about me but we're not going to go back to the paleolithic <laughs> if, you know with seven billion people what i mean what are you thinking well i'm thinking we for a couple of generations now we've understood how to control um birth rates yeah quite well we're doing it unfortunately we're doing it in most cases just to kill female fetuses because of cultural preferences for male fetuses in India and China. I think there are you know, over a million abortions a day being performed in those countries. And I remember the exact number. And I don't mean to get into the abortion debate, but the point is we know how to control fertility through uh, contraception. Um, and if we had an economic system that addressed the <coughs> economic uh, uh, incentives toward having lots of kids. You know, the, the highest birth rates are in the poorest countries. Right. right? So prosperity and having giving women economic and political power and, and then access to the technologies, exactly. of course. That yeah. does it automatically. You don't right. have to have top-down uh, government decrees about this. It just happens naturally. Uh, it, particularly if well, women, women control yeah. uh, the family size then the family sizes get smaller. Exactly, yeah. And, and I would say we also have it within our grasp, uh, not uh, theoretically, I don't think politically it's feasible at this point, but if there were a worldwide universal basic income implemented, yeah. and that were uh, tied in to motivate, first of all, it gives people the economic security to not have to have eight kids to know they're not gonna die in poverty when they're, you right. know, um, but also if you incentivized, you get a little more each year or each month if you don't have kids. Right. Then suddenly it becomes like, oh, wait, it makes sense. I mean, it's all you already see it in the United States and right. in Catalonia and Japan. There, there are places where 
we're actually below replacement rate. Right. Um, Quite a few because it's are too below. fucking expensive right. to have right. kids. That's right. So if we accelerated that process, I, I certainly don't argue we're going to go back to the hunter-gatherer times. The way, what I argue in this book is, and then I'm going to stop talking about my book, uh, is we're going to live in a zoo. We're going to live in an artificial environment. There's no doubt about it. But do we want to live in the Calcutta Zoo or the San Diego Zoo? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. So let's try to design our, yes. our artificial yeah. world in a way that recognizes and respects the natural world from which we came rather than just some, right. you know, well, it's more convenient to just have concrete cages because you can hose them out, you know, like, well, that's... Well, not... here you're back to where we started with, um, you know, what, what scientists do best, which is figuring out what we've been doing that's good and do more of that and figure out what we've been doing that's bad and do less of that. So here you're talking about uh, behavioral choice architecture, you know, nudge, you know, so-called nudge, Cass right. Sunstein and yeah. Dick Thaler, you know, pioneered this, you know, so it, it, the ironic term is liberal. Uh, libertarian paternalism you still have a choice but we're going to give you you know four or five choices you know from more healthy to slightly less healthy of diet or investment or retirement accounts or health plans or whatever so you're still giving people choice uh, but we kind of nudge them in the direction through incentives like with the the famous example of the organ donation mm. uh, system in California, yeah. you have to opt in by punching the little tab on your driver's license. Right. Oregon, you are donating your organs. You have to opt out. Uh, and you have to opt out, and they have a higher rate. Okay, right. so that's a that's a, that's a kind of a thing that even hardcore libertarians can live with. Some choice has to be offered, right? Because we live in a society, so let's let's use science and reason to get get us to the bet, nudge us more of us to the right in the right direction without completely sacrificing uh, free choice sure you know and and we could just do that across the board yeah and this is in part what's led to the you know the decline of, of crime and and the improvement of of society is just kind of nudging things in in different directions just tilting the incentives yeah um and uh, that yeah the to work. trick is to have those incentives and those nudges in the direction of human uh increased quality of life for human beings as opposed to the agendas of corporate interests. Yes. And that's what worries me about libertarians. I, I, I feel like, you know, I follow some friends of mine who are libertarians on Twitter and social media, and the arguments I see them making just strike me as being so... Um, like the kind of shit I listened to, uh, I believed when I was a teenager, when, <laughs> I, when I thought Ayn Rand was really smart. Right, right. You know, like, they... they there seems to be an assumption that the government just needs to get out of the way and everything will be great. Right. But they're not recognizing that on the other side of government are massive corporate interests that don't give a shit how happy you are. Right. They don't give a shit how clean the earth is, how clean the air is, unless somehow it interferes with their profit. Right. And government is the only institution that can mitigate the power of the corporations. Right. Like, you know, as an American, having lived in Europe most of my life, I come back here and it's so clear that this place is run by companies. Right. In Europe, it's still run by by the nation states, right. which have lots of problems. I'm, I'm not, yeah. you know, advocating for that. But uh, you notice a big difference yes. when the government yes. is diminished and the idea that, um, you know, 
government isn't going to solve your problem. Government is the problem, right. first articulated by Reagan. <laughs> Too simplistic. Yeah. By I, far. It's, <clears throat> no, that's why I've, I've... Are you a libertarian? Well, I, I, I used to call myself that I don't anymore because the, the very things you just said, but also, um, you know, it's such a loose confederation of, of people with a, a broad range of beliefs. Right. You know, libertarians do not agree on foreign policy, for example. Should we just be completely isolationist? Right. Or should we go over there and try to turn these countries into libertarian or at least democracies by force mm. you know they don't agree on that and they don't agree on things like abortion like uh not Rand, uh ron paul was against abortion you know and mm. most libertarians are in favor of pro-choice okay? right so they don't completely so i just quit using the term because it yeah. comes with too much oh you're you, you're an anarcho-capitalist or you you love ayn rand or whatever no okay so i like uh, classical liberalism actually sort of founding fathers kind of thing you need a government for sure you need strict rules you know pe people are not angels <laughs> you know we need guidelines including especially since 08 when sort of a combination of of the uh, financial meltdown clearly financial markets especially need regulation uh, right you know maybe the chocolate chip cookie seller down on the corner here you know, I'm not worried about him being regulated by the state. In fact, just leave right. this little guy alone. Right. But these, you know, these Wall Street traders and stuff, they're like, and so the second force for me was in my, the analogy with sports. You know, I'm a big cyclist and, you know, doping has become a, just a rampant problem. It's always been a problem. It's gotten even worse. And the problem is, is that, you know, the uh, traders are like athletes, you know, the, the my goal is to win. I want to make as much money as I can. Mm. And telling a trader you shouldn't make quite as much money would be like telling LeBron James you shouldn't try to win so many games. That's what I'm. That's what he's paid to do. Right. So unless there's a you know a, an overarching league of rules that comes in and goes, okay, you, you guys are like children here. You need rules and boundaries, and we're going to enforce them. And they actually want that. The athletes would prefer not to do dope, um, but. But they end up in this kind of catch-22 that, you know, it's again, it's a behavioral game problem. It, the other guy, it's the other guy doing it. It's the other guy problem, like right. North Korea. I'd give up my nukes, if, but if that other guy is not going to give up his nukes. Right. It always comes down to human nature. So you got to have an overarching uh, rule setter and enforce the rules fairly and equitably across the board. Uh, with some pretty severe penalties or else the people will cheat. Yeah. So my, my you know, my shift over the decades has been just more of a understanding of human nature through the study with you know just behavior behavioral genetics evolutionary psychology really it just looks like we have a dark enough side our inner demons versus our better angels as Steve Pinker characterizes it um, the the inner demons are pretty strong and if we don't ride herd on them yeah, uh, you know, and uh, something outside of us has to ride herd on them. And you know, I'm not religious, and I don't think religion is the solution. So really, you got to have a a league, <laughs> you know, a rule enforcer. So government of, of some sort. Have you ever sort. read Christopher Bohm's work? Yes, I know Christopher Bohm. I know him, and I know his works. I wrote about that in the Moral Arc. That <clears throat> he shows that these hunter gatherers have a whole set of rules about dealing with bullies and free riders. Yeah. Everything from gossiping and, and, right. and talking to them to shunning them a to ridicule. A ridicule to taking, you know, the guy out on a, a hunt with him and then and he, he doesn't come, come back. He doesn't come back. Yeah. Yeah. And that they all do this and, and there's a reason for that. Yeah. So they figured out human nature. You know, and that there's yeah. some people that are on, so far gone on the dark side that the, the only way, capital punishment is the only way to deal with them. Well, somebody like Trump and a hunter-gatherer uh, 
society certainly would not have risen to any state of power. He'd, he'd be lucky to survive. Probably, yes. <laughs> He's a, you know, egotism, uh, narcissism, boorishness, right, right. you know, intruding on other people's personal space, all these things. Uh, you know, Christopher Bone makes a, a fantastic point, uh, which is that, you know, our ancestors have been armed and deadly yes. for hundreds of thousands of years. Right. And it doesn't matter if you're bigger or right. louder or, right. you know, everybody knows how to kill you at 50 right. feet, you know, right. uh, or as you say, nudge you off a cliff on a hunting trip or right. off an ice floe or out of the canoe. It's, <laughs> right. It doesn't, it's very easy to eliminate somebody in those societies. Although sometimes if the bully is a, a, a pretty big, strong guy, you need several people. So you, you, an you, arrow in the back will take you out. I <laughs> yeah. don't care how big. And yeah. But I mean, you, you need some kind of collective agreement like mm. we need to do something about this guy yeah. now yeah. let's start and, and and ratchet up from sure talking to him to right. shunning him well to, as you yeah. say it starts with ridicule it starts with joking and right you know and we still do these things among among friends or on it you're talking about sports if you look at a team dynamics it's so reminiscent of hunter-gatherer dynamics right, right. You know? I, and i think we I, it's interesting because i agree with you um, in the, the sense that human nature obviously has the yin and the yang and the light and the dark and all that. Um, and we do need uh, something to sort of uh, to mitigate those negative impulses. But I, I feel like the hunter-gatherer societies had that all worked out. And then the shift into hierarchical uh, post-agricultural world, we, we let loose some of those demons. The, those yeah. the, the selfishness now we celebrate you know Wall Street we self we, we celebrate selfishness and greed to the point where even if we do have an, a well-funded effective um, government agency overseeing Wall Street it's still functioning at a disadvantage because the brightest people coming out of school are going to go work for Wall Street they're not going to go work for the government because they make 10 times more money on Wall Street yeah one argument I've been using lately with uh, libertarians is that if you really believe in free markets or pro-capitalist people, uh, then uh, you know we're not even close to having that kind of system, right? Because uh, of the corruption with politics, you know, yeah. the, just the corporate, um, sorry, the uh, crony capitalism. You know, that's not capitalism. That's not free markets. But when, when they say that money is doing what it does naturally, it's accruing toward. They might power. say that, but they're wrong. Hmm. <laughs> I just watched uh, Robert Reich's new. Uh, a Netflix film, um, Saving Capitalism, yeah, which is a little bit like uh, also um, uh, John Mackey, the f former CEO of Whole Foods. He's a, a hardcore libertarian, uh, but he wrote a book called, uh, what is it, uh, C C Compassionate Capitalism, I think he called it. Um, the, the problem is, is that w w with, with crony capitalism, um, the people in power, they don't want competition. They don't want a free market. They just want the power. Oh, I see. Right. <laughs> so they buy right. the politicians to pass legislation that prevents competition for them. Right. And so they can monopolize the market unfairly. Um, and so Reich's point, which is a good one, because he's you know a, a, a pretty far left liberal, but he's saying capitalism is great, but you. It, but this kind of capitalism we have is not working yeah. Uh, because these guys get an unfair advantage. Yeah. And now he's saying that from a liberal perspective, but I can see from a, if you really believe in free markets and competition, we don't have that. These guys are not competing against other people that could actually 
keep them in check right uh, because somebody else will rise up to counter your bad product or whatever they just buy off these industries through politicians that, that prevent competition and so that that's a serious problem yeah yeah it's funny I you know as I said I lived in Europe most of my adult life and I came to love soccer because I lived in right. Barcelona which is one right. of the great soccer cities in the world and um, I much prefer soccer to watch soccer on TV than American football, uh, especially now with all the yeah. brain damage yeah. and you know the things that are happening now. But, but it's interesting that um, American football—you never know who's going to be a good team next year, because the way they have it set up with revenue sharing and the the bottom teams get the first draft pick, right. so they keep churning and. You know, Green Bay, with the smallest TV market of any team in the country, probably, is often a really good team. Right. And conversely, in European football, there is no revenue sharing. There is no um, limit to how much a team can spend on players. So you have Real Madrid and Barcelona right. and Manchester right. United every year. <laughs> they're right. always one of those teams. Dynasties. Or, you know, they're always going to be the same teams. And it really makes it kind of boring. Yes. You know, I mean, it's from a competitive perspective. Right. right. So I think, though, I mean, on sports terms, that's what we're talking about with uh, economics. The American football system is set up so that competition actually happens in a more or less right. on a more or less level playing field, right. um, metaphorically. Um, so I agree with you. Yeah, if but that kind of capitalism needs strong government, which is antithetical to right. you know what the right is arguing in the right. U.S. But none of this has anything to do with life after death. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I, that's right. I came over here to talk about my new book, and here we are talking about all these other interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's just so many interesting problems yeah, to work on. At definitely, the moment. and and I, I really like talking with you because I feel like in in a lot of ways you and I are sort of coming at this at a lot of issues from very opposing perspectives, but. Um, I, I, I just I think you're you come at it with um, you're not dismissive and you're you're open minded and you're really thinking things through. And so I feel like when I'm speaking with you, I'd, I mean, I don't know Sam Harris personally, but I feel like if I if I were to have a conversation with Sam Harris, I feel like it wouldn't go anywhere. And I, I really enjoy talking to the, with you because we're coming at these things from different angles. But um well, I try, to, I try to focus on particular issues. So politically, I'm more of an issues person. Right. Like instead of saying, are you a libertarian, classical liberal, what are you? Right. Well, what about, just to talk about abortion or gun control or climate change. You know, just pick the issue and I'll tell you where I'm at it right, on it right now. And I may change my mind. Right. Like I've been, like all week I've been changing my mind about this uh, cake, cake baker guy. Right. You know, and uh, this, this will be, well, this won't be decided by the time this airs in January. I guess they won't decide by June. But this is the case of the Colorado... Um, cake decorator who refused to bake, uh, decorate the cake for a gay, a gay couple. Right. Okay, so the Col state of Colorado said that's discrimination. And now this is through a long series of steps ended up at the Supreme Court. Okay, right. so, you know, I've been reading all these op-eds and I just keep changing. Oh, that's a good argument. I think I'll go, no, that's an even better argument. I'll go this other side. Yeah. You know, I mean, I hate the idea of the government, you know, forcing somebody to do something against their beliefs. Um, but on the other hand, this is the same kind of argument people made decades ago about, well, I don't want to bake a cake for a, a black 
uh, inter- interracial couple. Right. And there was a case about this. It's like, yeah, that's good that the state stepped in and did something about that because now we don't have that problem anymore. Uh, and, and you could just take this all the way back to slavery. How did this end? It would be nice if we had just a complete shift of culture and how we think about other people from the bottom up and we didn't need the force of the state to step in with their guns to stop it. But in fact, uh, it took a civil war and 620,000 dead to put an end to it here. And I don't think that would have happened uh, for probably another half century on its own. You know, so sometimes the state does have to step in. So I'm very, I've been very conflicted about the cake thing. You know, I don't want the government to go in and tell this poor little cake guy, you have to uh, decorate a cake for a gay couple. You know, if he doesn't want to do it, then, you know, hang a sign out there that says, I don't like gay couples, you know, and let the market uh, punish him for that. But on the other hand, you know, in, in uh, the past half century, that hasn't happened naturally from the bottom up as much as I would like to see it. Interracial couples, how Jews were treated, uh, how women have been treated. You know, at some point you need some kind of top down that says stop doing that. Like when I think it was Kennedy that had to send the troops in to to desegregate those Alabama schools. Right. Was it Kennedy or Johnson that sent? Uh, I think it was Kennedy that sent federal troops I don't remember. in. It was Wallace, I remember. It was, was Wallace that said, we're not going to do it. Yeah. You, you're not going to send your federal uh, laws, yeah. in, you know, states' rights Kennedy. and all that stuff. Uh, but in fact, it took. It, that's what it took to desegregate. Right. Um, and, and what was the one? There was one in Indiana, too, the famous one where the black girl went to the high school and the yes. National Guard had to escort yes, her in. right. Um, Brown versus Board of Education. Yeah, yeah. That was a Supreme Court So it's unfortunate case, that sometimes you actually need a guy with a big club to go in there and go, stop doing this. It's like with uh, Satie in, um, is that it, where, where in India where they... Mm, uh, Satie, the, where they burn the wife. They burn the, the wife. Yeah. Uh, and when um, the Brits colonized India, they said, you're going to stop doing this. And they said, well, this is our culture, and you have to respect our culture. And they said, and the, the general in charge said something like, all right, well, here's our culture. When you burn women alive, uh, we hang you. So go ahead and build your sati fires and we will build our gallows. And when you burn them, we will hang you. Uh, and that, you know, they put a stop, well, they mostly put a stop to it. Well, that's a very interesting question, though, because, you know, here we are colonizing the country. Yes, so, right. I mean, I look at that uh, in terms of immigration. So you've got, you know, let's say you've got um, uh, Saudi immigrants and the father says to the daughter, now they're living in San Jose, and the father says, you will not have sex before marriage. Then he finds out she has a boyfriend and he, you know, slaps her around. Right. Or sews her vagina closed, you know, right. or, or, you know, they remove her clitoris. Where, where are their rights there? Where's their right, right. to cultural determination right. there? I say it ends the minute they immigrate. Yes. You know, you, you're going to come to our country, then... These are, these are our laws. Yeah, yeah. within That's reason, right. you have to follow certain laws. But even if it's outside of our country, I mean, like with uh, female genital mutilation, this is one of those ones where I think you know, the libertarian or the cultural relativist position is untenable. Mm. You know, th- this is actually causing physical harm to these women. Okay, but the women say they want it. Well, wait a minute. Who says it? Well, the mothers of the women. Okay, but they've been indoctrinated and... You know, it's like the, you know, the libertarians say, well, Mormons should be able to have polygamy because it's consenting adults. Yeah. Wait a minute. These are 12-year-old girls. They're not consenting to anything. So okay, but about, when they become 18. Right. Yeah, but they were raised since they were one. So what about sex them. workers then? How, where do you come well, down on Okay, that? so they're, 
there I'd say, you know, let sex workers do whatever they want. They're adults. The, the, what worries me is that if, but if you start them off as teenagers and you're drugging them or whatever, you know, their, their brains are not developed to make rational choices. There I think we do need some state regulations and controls. Are any of our brains developed to make rational choices? <laughs> well, the potential is there. <laughs> and we're all contaminated by culture. Yes, that's you know? right. Yes. And, you know, talking about the, this Me Too movement and what's happening now in, in the culture, you know, if girls are raised to believe that they're second-class citizens and uh, their sexuality is their their biggest asset, then you could argue that uh, they're really, you know, a, an 18-year-old girl who decides to go into porn is not really different from a Mormon girl who decides yes. to, you know, be one of four wives. Yes, so that would be an argument for state regulation against prostitution, say. It would be. Yes. Or, or for letting Mormons do what they want to do. Right, yes. Depending yeah, yeah. how you look yes. at it. I guess yeah. the question, you know, I guess it comes down to to what extent uh, of autonomy and choice as an adult. Uh, but the gray area is the problem. Where, who's yeah. an adult? Right. That's yeah, what you have to yeah. say. It's, yeah, because, so the you know, Supreme Court voted that you can't execute an 18-year-old uh, uh, somebody under 18 because they, they, they're not making rational choices about their criminal behavior. But you can try a 13-year-old as an adult. Yeah. yeah. What, what is that? Yeah. How can you try them as an adult? Right. They, they, I mean, and that raises the question of, is anyone really... I, I mean, self-defense um, uh, by way of insanity, right? Right. Now, you kill someone, aren't you kind of insane by definition? You kill some guy because he cut you off in traffic. Yes. Isn't that well? The, the McNaughton rule insane? definition is is that you don't know the difference between right and wrong. So when the person wipes clean their fingerprints and throws yeah. the knife away, they know uh, that this is wrong, and that's why they're covering up their tracks. So right. they would lose the, uh, the self defense by reason of insanity. Right. Um, and that and that defense is not used very often anymore, and it's almost never successful anymore. Yeah. So, I just wonder if any of us know the difference between right and wrong. I, well, I think I it's think far do. less clear than I think it's a convenient myth that we that we know what's right and wrong, and and it enables us. I mean, in this country, I don't see a criminal justice system. I see a, a revenge system. Yes, our society is too based on the Judeo-Christian retributive justice. You should be eye for an eye. You should be punished. Yeah. Not not rehabilitated. In Germany, my wife's from Germany. Um, you know, they, they have a focus on restorative justice. Right. We got to get these guys out of prison as soon as possible and back into the workforce. Right. Because this is too expensive and it's not productive for society. That's right. productive. Right. You know, these guys, the 60 Minutes did a nice piece on this last year. You know, these guys are basically living in apartments. I the saw doors that. are not locked. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, the whole point is to get them out. Right. And our, the whole point of our system is to and, punish. And by the way, not get them out so they can hurt people that's again. That's right. Yeah. Get them right, out yeah. in a way that they right. can get a job, that they're you know, off the drugs that they were. Right. on that, that they've got a purpose in life that's right i mean you see and that gets down to this question of what's right and wrong because kind of it feels to me like if people have meaning in their lives they're they're very unlikely to do things that are destructive to the system that gives them meaning right and so the problem is that we've created this society where so many people have no meaning they have no opportunity they have they're de they're degraded by the system, so they act out in ways that are violent against the system. 
Yeah, but most violence is in, in, in crime is very specifically targeted in certain areas by certain individuals. It's like a, it's like the 80-20 rule, uh, you know, power laws. Like 80% right. of the crimes or homicides are committed by 20, but it's even smaller. It's like 2%. But who are those people? Uh, well, talking it, about gangbangers. Yeah, a lot of gangs and people don't have fathers when they're right, growing up. Where are their right, fathers? Right, Prison. Right. Uh, most of them probably are not white. Uh, they're right. certainly not right. upper class white. Right. Um, you know. So, I, I guess my feeling, what I'm trying to say is, like, I don't think any puppy is born to be a mean dog. <laughs> you know, I don't. Think, well, except for psychopaths, there's you know, there's, yeah, a, there's that one percent, very that, small percent, yeah, yeah, very small yeah, percent, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and they either if they get out of that, then they work on Wall Street. <laughs> That's the truth. Wall Street or politics. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we we could talk about we could talk for six hours and never get to your book. So let's yeah. get to, you to this. Okay. Book. All right. Because uh, I'm really interested in in this question. I have a friend who wrote a a book uh, called The Hereafter, Richard Schweid, where he went around the world and looked at different cultures and yeah. their, their conceptions of what happens after we die. So what's what's the central argument? Well, I, I do I do discuss some of that. I have a cha chapter on the uh, afterlife according to the monotheisms, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, uh, and largely dispense with that fairly quickly because the you know first of all they're they're inconsistent about what the afterlife would be like. So that alone tells us that it's culturally bound. For example, the, I make the point that there, you know, there there are books about the history of heaven, hmm. you know, the history of the concepts concepts of heaven throughout yeah. throughout the last several thousand years. But but it's very different than, than say from the history of cosmology. Where although there's been shifting, changing models about the cosmos and the origins of the universe, there's 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 a sense of progress. Like we're getting closer and closer to understanding what it's really like out there in space and what the cosmos is really like. There's nothing like that for heaven. The mm. afterlife is just it's this, it's that. It just depends on where you happen to have been born. So um, my main focus then is to shift to the scientific attempts to achieve uh, immortality or radical life extension. You know, I mean, that's sort of my, again, my wheelhouse is, you know, dealing with science. And, you know, there there are people who are, I call it afterlife or atheists. You know, they don't think there's a heaven, that they're, they're, they're not dualists. They don't think there's a soul that continues on. They think it's all material. So how can we extend our physical bodies as long as possible and then do something else chronically frozen or uh the the latest most popular one is you know mind uploading you know this is the kind of the singularity the ray kurzweil the you know, johnny depp and transcendence where you upload your your your, your connectome the, the copy of all your neural connections which is where you're stored you your soul your pattern of information that represents you is stored in this connectome and if like with the genome project we could achieve the connectome project then we would have you capture you and then put it in some other medium that lasts longer so let's just go through some of these for example um, people make the point that you know we're living twice as long as we did a century ago or so because this is not true the, the, this is just public health measures they get more and more of us up toward the upper ceiling thank you <laughs> thank you oh my god yeah well a century ago I wouldn't have a problem with but but prehistory. Yeah. That's, I hear that all the time. We're right. living twice as long. No one ever lived past 30. Yeah. Bullshit. That's right. That's Total right. bullshit. Total anyway, bullshit. I mean, go, plenty go of people in the Middle Ages or Paleolithic times or whatever lived to the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And doctors believe this now. Right. I, I, I cite a doctor in Civilized to Death, uh, a, a physiologist from UCSF, who says, the reason we have so much back problem is that the human body wasn't designed to live past 35. <laughs> oh, my God. 
God. This is a professor at UCSF. Unbelievable. Yes. Yeah. It's so widespread. Yeah. And I argue it's widespread because it's self it's self-congratulating. Right. It, it's propaganda. Right. Yeah, uh, look, look what we've achieved. Yeah. I mean, what we've achieved with with um, public health is great for the vast uh, uh, poor people that now live longer, healthier lives. Great. But no one's living past, one. say, 120 is the kind of the maximum. And very few make it to, say, 110 or even 100. And, and also, how many of those years are healthy, effective, vigorous? Well, that's right. So, of course, but, but, but so, so I, these are the transhumanists and, and, and the extropians. They're against entropy and the singularity people. Extropians? <laughs> extropians, yeah. Extropians. Yeah, there's an actual movement called extropy. They're against entropy. Oh, <laughs> God. You know, which is, of course, a doomed, That's fantastic. Uh, you know, a doomed movement because you, you cannot stop entropy. The whole universe is going to run down. <laughs> entropy? Yeah. Holy shit. Well, so, you know, you start That's off beautiful. with basic stuff like diet and exercise and, you know, just basic things to li- live a healthy life. Don't yeah. smoke. You know, don't jump out of airplanes with parachutes. You know, just don't do risky things. Okay. Um, okay, fine. But all that's going to do is get you, you know, up to, say, 80 or 90. And and the problem is is I you know so a lot of these people I interview say don't you want to live to be five hundred Shermer a thousand years it's like look just get me to ninety without prostate cancer get me to a hundred without Alzheimer's get me to one hundred and ten without you know I'm laying in a bed with tubes and I'm, you know, no one wants to live like that so you know the, the so it's protopia as Kevin Kelly calls it just incremental steps of progress just just solve the Alzheimer's problem which is a huge problem um, and, and it's going to get worse you know just b- before we worry about living a thousand years let's just see if we can get more and more of us up to say a hundred healthy so the other problem there with the radical life extension for example is we have no idea like if you live if, if you know a billion people live into their 120s 130s 140s what other problems are that we've never even discovered uh, say the equivalent of something like Alzheimer's that you know people would not have gotten in mm. such numbers because you know billions of people didn't live that that uh, that long. So there might be other problems we'd have to encounter. Then then it becomes a sort of a measure of faith. Like well, science will figure that out when we get there. Yeah, maybe, but maybe not. So you know, again, just solve one problem at a time. So the other problem though is kind of a philosophical one with the idea of of uploading your your mind. What does that mean? So here I have a whole chapter on the soul. What is the soul? So, you know, I go through the religious arguments and so on. But from a scientist's perspective, this would be capturing you. But what does that mean, you? Is it your body? Is it your, is it your memory? So, right. so one definition and is... you that, today? That's another problem. Not you 10 years ago. Right, or 10 years from now. Right. I mean, me, even if just capture my memories, there is no... Um, like recording device in the brain that has all the memory stored up from past. But, you know, these memories, there's no video rec- recorder in there. Right. There's no, you know, theater, uh, you know, the, the Cartesian theater of the mind where the little homunculus is watching your past on the screen and reporting back to some other part of your brain. This is what right. it, it, this is what it was like when you were 10 years old. Uh, these are f- memories are all fluid. They're constantly changing. And um, so when you say I've recorded my connectome on, you know, this particular day, well, that's just your memories of that particular day. That's not you. You are this lifelong package that's always in fluid change. So even that's a problem. So that this is called the memory self. Mem self is just your, your, you've captured your set of memories at that particular moment. 
but that's still not you, even if you could somehow capture them for, for your whole life, because you're still your, what's called your point of view self, your POV self, that through your eyes, uh, looking at the world self. So like when you go to sleep tonight and you wake up tomorrow, there's a continuity. Maybe you're a little groggy for a few minutes, but it all comes back and there's a continuity. Or if you go under general anesthesia and you're, you're out for a couple hours, you know, consciousness is gone, but it comes back. So if you're cryonically frozen and brought back, say, a thousand years from now, would, would you wake up and still look out, be looking out through your eyes? You know, maybe. Um, but if you are copied and put in a computer, again, Johnny Depp and Transcendence, all of a sudden he's, he's in the laptop looking out through the little camera hole. I don't see how that would happen. I don't see how your point of view would transfer into some other substrate medium. Uh, because as it's portrayed now, this is done by, by basically you're dead. So we, we copy your brain by slicing it taking your brain out, slicing it, and doing a, a scanning electron microscope a copy of all your neural connections, every single synaptic connection. First of all, this is not even conceivable well, in terms yes, of... That's what I was going to say. Aren't there more synaptic connections than all the stars in the universe? That, that, that's, that's right, there are. So first of all, you would need massive computing power. So here they, you know, they throw out, well, Moore's Law. You know, we just keep yeah. doubling, doubling. We're right. going to get there. It may right. not be next year, but you know, and Kurzweil thinks this is all going to happen by 2040, 2050. You know, we're not even but don't, and don't all those connections reconfigure constantly? That, that's right. They're constantly re reconfiguring so, and changing. Yeah, so is... even if you, you stopped it right there, that's just, even if you could do this technologically, it would just be you at that particular moment. Right. And then, let, let's, say, but let's say, here's my other thought experiment from the book, is that let's say we did this while you're awake. We've got a, a, a fMRI scanning technology that's so sophisticated, we could copy every neural synaptic connection in your brain uh, while you're alive, and then we, you know, we store it on a hard drive or up in the cloud somewhere. And let's say a hundred years from now, there's companies that store you, you, your your memory self, and, and we put it into a clone of your body, and you're just still Christopher Ryan sitting right there while this happens. Your point of view self is not going to suddenly pop over into that other brain, the clone of you with the, your copy inside its brain. It, 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 you're going to still be sitting here, just like a twin doesn't look at its twin and go, well, there I go. It's just two autonomous. There would just be so, two copies of you. So you're assuming there can only be one point of view self at a time? That, that's right. Mm. Now, maybe the other the other copy of you still looks out through the eyes and goes, no, I'm Christopher Ryan. And then <laughs> exactly. you're going, no, no, I'm Christopher Ryan. Right. It would just be two of you. They right. Would, and it would just be the copy. Maybe he uses his middle name instead. That's at least one yeah. too many. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, anyway, so, so I think it's a problem of identity. Right. Who, well, who this are is interesting you? because you're, here you are, one of the best known scientific skeptics in the world probably, and you're essentially arguing against what feels to me like a religious impulse within the scientific community. Because when I read yes, people like yes. Kurzweil, Kurzweil and these, you know, this, this singularity and all these arguments for life extension, what I, what I feel is that these are, these are people who don't, for, for intellectual reasons, they're um, <clears throat> un... How can I say this? That a spiritual... Yes. approach to these issues is unavailable to them. Yes. So they, they invest this fear of death uh, in the, a scientific yes. manifestation 
of, of what is essentially a, a spiritual or religious impulse. I think it's there in everybody. So I actually opened the book with this idea that you cannot even conceive of death. Because to conceive of anything, you have to be alive. You have to be sentient, conscious. You have to be aware. And if you're dead, you, you can't do that. So we have something of a paradox. is that We can see everybody that's ever lived has died and no one comes back. So, uh, but uh, yet I can't conceive of not being alive. So you have this kind of like, well, now what? So if you think it through, then you go, well, I have to think of some way to continue on. You know, Woody Allen, I don't want to live on through my work. I want to live on in my apartment. How can we do that? <laughs> and, you know, to the Kurzweils of the world, it's like, well, we're going to tackle this problem. And, you know, these are not fringe nuts. You know, Google has invested hundreds of millions of dollars in yeah. these companies. And yeah. Kurzweil works for them now. And uh, Jeff Bezos and, and Peter Thiel, these guys all have invested in these companies that are into radical life extension, transhumanism, and, and this idea of the singularity. So this is not just some, this is not some, some weird cult. Um, you know, this is, th these guys are serious and I just don't see how they could solve this problem of identity that they, they would just be making copies of you. You know, you're, and, and I think religion has the same problem because let's say, depending on which, which, which version of Christianity or, 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 or which religion you're talking about, when you're dead and in the grave, okay, your brain is there six feet under. Okay. So uh, the idea is that your soul goes up there somehow and is, and is what? Well, you're, you're uploaded to the cloud. Yeah, something. So, you know, there you are sitting next to Jesus in heaven or something. Well, what, what is it that's there? Is it your physical body? Well, some versions of Christianity, yes, you're actually resurrected like Jesus was, and it's physically you. Okay, if, if that's the case, how does God do this where you're still you, but you don't get cancer, you don't age? So if you don't age, how old are you in heaven? Right. I mean, these concepts lose all meaning if you think about it sure. at all. So it, yeah. ha it has to be some kind of spiritual thing where you're so different, you're not right. even really you. So then what's the point? If you're not you, yeah. what's up there? So did you come across any uh, conceptions of, of, of the, the hereafter that touched you, that, that resonated with you, that made sense in any sense? Well, probably, uh, I, I kind of slightly prefer, I guess, the kind of Eastern wisdom tradition says, I have a whole chapter on Deepak Chopra, who I got to know pretty well, and I went down to his center in Carlsbad and did the whole full immersion of meditation and, and the tea and the incense and the, you know, all that stuff. Um, you know, they believe, Buddhists, uh, that, it, it, you know, consciousness is fundamental to the universe and that we, we are just temporary physical manifestations of this consciousness. So where you go after death is you just return to the conscious consciousness, which is completely different, has nothing to do with, with, you know, the heaven that Christians conceive of. It's just something we can't really even conceive of. Right. Um, there's no way to test that, you know, it's just like a, an assertion. Uh, to me, that would be, that seems more reasonable because at least I can't conceive of what the logical problems are with that, you know, yeah. that, that we're just in some kind of conscious state that's not physical. Okay, well, then you don't have all the problems of identity right. And, right. And, and all that, that that the Western religious traditions do. And, uh, and as Deepak says, you, it doesn't have to be, you, you, doesn't, you don't have to believe it for it to work. Because I ask him, what's the uh, what's the actionable consequences of your belief system for me now? I still have to go to work tomorrow. I've got to pay my mortgage and, and so on. Um, and he says, well, you know, maybe it lowers stress. You don't, you're not anxious about life and death and the existential questions. You're just in the now. This is why Buddhists focus on now. And, and I, there, I can kind of see why that that matters. Because um, even atheists like Sam Harris makes this point that. 
that you can only control what's going on right now at this moment for you. You actually can't, you know, the Stoics talk about it. You can't control, mm. you know, the past. It's already happened. The future hasn't happened yet. Uh, somebody on the other side of the world, I have no say. There's things I just can't control. The only thing I can do is just be in the present now. Right. And it's like there's a good point to that. Right. And I could kind of see how that does make a difference in your life. It makes maybe slightly less stress. You're not, you're not constantly flooded with thoughts about, oh, I should have said this when mm. my boss did that, or 10 years ago when that guy screwed me. Right, so it's got a lot of practical yes. utility, but also it aligns with the, the sort of viewpoint that you're outlining in, in general, which is that the future and the past are both imaginary places. Right. So the more time you spend there, the, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. I, our, our mutual friend, Stanley Krippner. Oh, right. You know Stanley, yes, right? Yeah, yeah. He's, I'm, I'm going down to San Diego in a couple of days for his 85th birthday party. Oh, um, really? Oh, yeah, great. Yeah. Say hi to Stanley. And, you know, Daniel Ellsberg was at his 80th birthday oh, really? party. I, right. I met Daniel Ellsberg there. Yeah, <coughs> it was great. Um, anyway, one time I, I said to Stanley, uh, I don't remember what it was, but it was like, if you could, you know, have a conversation with any, you know, great thinker from the past, who would it be? And he said, oh, I, I never think about things like that. I, I never fantasize about things that are, that, that couldn't happen. Right. Um, I, I spend all my mental energy on things that could actually happen. Right. I thought, well, that's a very utilitarian it, approach. It, it, to, it is. And, to and probably healthy. I think it's very healthy. You know, there's, yeah. a, there's a sizable movement in the Western world, particularly in the United States, for, uh, you know, kind of a westernized Buddhism. Mm. You know, Bob Wright's uh, new book on, you know, Why Buddhism is True. Yeah. He's yeah. really talking about kind of a Western, um, actionable, take-home, what can I do to me, you know, very practical. You know, Thoreau, Emerson, Whitman, those guys were all essentially Buddhists, the right. transcendentalists. Right, uh, transcendentalists, uh, You know, yes. that was a... Uh, westernized Buddhist nature is the you know be out in nature and, and live in the present moment right all that stuff is very deep in the transcendental yeah so there yeah. Uh, you know my conclusion I'm an atheist so you know just like this is it this is all we have now I don't know there's no afterlife uh, of any kind to me it seems like the monotheism versions of the afterlife are uh, illogical and, yeah. and, and, and don't exist. The scientific attempts is, you know, as much as I, I, I love reading about it, and I think it's great that Google and these huge billionaire companies and, and individuals are trying to do something about aging problems, and I hope they figure it out by the time you and I hit the wall. Too late. <laughs> you know, <laughs> things like, again, Alzheimer's. You know, I'm really worried about this. You know, you, you won't even know. It's just all of a sudden you just, you know, the mind is gone. This, the, the, you know, I'm not well, worried about a thousand years from now. Yeah. Just, just solve those problems. Now. But, but the, Alzheimer's raises really interesting questions about identity. Yes, you know? that's right. If yeah, you don't it. know, if you don't recognize your closest friends and family, are you you anymore? Yeah, right. and, and if you're not, if we agree you're not, then what responsibilities do we have to keep your body alive? Right, no, expense? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but the problem is it's a, it's a dialing down. You know, the rheostat goes down slowly and there's no good place to draw the line. And it's like with cryonics, you know, you're, it's a form of burial at the moment because yeah. legally there's no good, you know, when, when are you going to, you know, hit the switch? It's like the euthanasia problem, you know, this is okay. So, you know, if, with cryonics, just think about that. You, you, you're being frozen on the worst day of your life. <laughs> this is not a good start you're to your thousand year. after it's been sitting in the sun <laughs> yeah. for a few hours. Yeah, it's, yeah. You know, it's no good. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah. So uh, uh, yeah, my chapter on on the soul and the problem of identity. It, you know, that that's a huge philosophical issue. You know, who are you? And and it, from a scientific perspective, it's like the abortion thing. You know, there's no place to draw the line. Yeah. But but we have to live in a world with laws, and so so, so legally, you got to just draw the line somewhere and say it's this. It's week twelve or whatever. Or in the case of cryonics, it's the day you die. You can be frozen. You know, the case with uploading. You know, why doesn't Ray Kurzweil just off himself right now when he's healthy and go ahead and upload the brain? You know, well, the technology's not there. Yeah, but come on, Ray. You you know <laughs> that you want to go one more day in the, in the electric yeah. meat of your brain because yeah. you, at some level, I think most of these people know uh, this is really a long shot. Yeah. And there's deep, deep problems. With there's a great film that I write about in, in Heavens on Earth about Kurzweil called Transcendent Man. Mm. It follows him around for you know a couple of years. They uh, they followed him around the camera crew, and he's a pretty morose guy. Uh, he's pretty dark. Maybe morose is not the right word. He's pretty dark. Uh, his father died at age fifty-one, and uh, you know Ray was it was an up-and-coming kind of um, superstar as a teenager. He won all these awards for inventions, and you know he was a the real Moog computer, the Moog uh, synthesizer, the Moog right? Synthesizer, yeah. yeah. You know, and uh, he's an amazingly brilliant guy. But throughout the film, you realize his whole campaign is to bring his father back. He has a right. whole basement of his house filled with all his father's stuff. And, mm. and he wants to put all that in a computer at some point, and there's his dad. You know, I mean, he's very Freudian. It's and funny how it all comes down. I, a good friend of mine, uh, Neil Strauss, do you know, you know him? He, I don't know he's him personally. A, but he's yeah. an author. He, he's written a bunch of books. But he just did a profile of uh, Elon Musk for oh, Rolling right. Stone. It's beautifully written, beautiful, really nicely done. Um, but if you look at the, the driving ambition in his life, it's about his relationship with his father. Okay, well. very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Okay, I'll have to read about that because that, yeah, he is one of the more compelling figures of our time, Elon. Yeah. Uh, I love his stuff. Drive one of his cars, you yeah. know, you know, if he if he can send a, a Tesla Roadster to Mars, <laughs> it's just hilarious, the stuff this guy wants. Okay, this is how it happens. But yeah, when you dig deeper, there's always something. And that impulse to live forever or, or be resurrected or continue on or bring people back, you know, that's such a deep impulse. And it's one of the things behind this, you know, the, it's like, you know, Jesus came back or Elvis is still alive or Princess Diana was never killed, you know, this idea. You know, these, the, the idea that our, our heroes, our kings, our, our leaders can't really die. Have you read The Denial of Death? Yes, yeah, yeah, I have. A, so I, I, I do challenge that thesis. That, By the way, there's no index in this book. Well, this is just the Bound Galley. Oh, the there index, will be? Yeah, there will be Okay, good. Of course, I was, of course. I was looking through the index. Oh, I was no, looking no, like, I where? Always, come on. I, I have a rule that no book should ever be published without an index. I, I agree. <laughs> yeah, no, Ernest Becker, I read that book, and you know, there's a whole theory uh, 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 constructed around his terror book. Terror management theory. Terror management theory. Yeah. I'm, I'm skeptical of that. I, I don't think terror is the deeper drive. I don't think it's that people are afraid of death. I think they, they are compelled to want to continue in a po more positive way is how I see it. I end up talking about love as the most important human emotion in that, because I did a whole content analysis of every final statement made by every death row inmate in the state of Texas. It's a convenient database because Texas has executed more people than anybody else. It's like 500 and something now. Since 1982, they've recorded them. So you picture the guy there in a crucifix type uh, 
scenario with the uh, arms spread out and the, and the needles in the arms and the microphone comes down and they say, would you like to make a final statement? And, and most of them do. And they recorded them and now they've transcribed them and you can uh, read them online. And they have, so it's a huge database you, you see from 1982 all the way to last week. Uh, and they have the person, the crime they committed, uh, who they killed, and, and then all the kind of de demographics about their life. And then their final statement, every word. And so I did a content analysis. I read every single one of them myself and then sort of figured out like a dozen different categories of what they were talking about. What, what, what are they saying? And then I had a couple of graduate students also read them. And then we got a couple more people. And then I, I, I ran a content analysis mm. and then a correlation between iterator, sort of iterator reliability. Like, did you put this statement in the category of, of the desire for revenge or sorrow or, um, uh, you know, asking for forgiveness from the family of the victims and so on? And, but by far and away, the most common theme throughout running throughout these was love. I love my, I love my, I love my mother, I love my girlfriend, my my wife, uh, my fellow inmates, because, you know, most of these guys are in there for like 15, 20 years. And, um, and, and then forgiveness, asking for forgiveness was the second was sorrow. I'm sorry for what I did. And I'd like to ask for forgiveness from, you know, the, fa the usually the families are there in the other room watching. And uh, it's, it's really quite a moving experience to do this. But, mm. you know, not terror at all. These guys aren't terrorized in the least. They're looking, all of them, look, I can't wait to go. I'm going to meet my maker. And, you know, I, I deserve this. But, you know, it's, life is going to be better in the other, on the other side. So most of them seem to have a strong religious. Yeah, most of them Christian. Now, see, you could argue that that's an effect yes, of terror. They, they're, Maybe, they're yes. They're so afraid right, that they right. turn to religion, as many people do when they right. approach the... The, the other problem with terror management is it's, it requires this unconscious, because uh, a motive, that it's only there, and we can tease it out, uh, only by these, uh, you know, by running these experiments in a certain way, by priming the brain. Now think about death. Now what would you do in this scenario, and so on. You know, I'm always a little suspicious, skeptical mm. of these uh, cognitive priming experiments, and a lot of them are not replicable, although many of these are. But but I think, I think what's going on more, uh, and here I cite Christopher Bohm, who we were talking about earlier. Um, that it's more of a moral motivation, like the classic experiment was if you prime judges uh, to think about death and they give harsher punishments. Right. To me, I think it's more like you're engaging their moral emotions that this is all there is, we have to have justice now, so I'm going to impose a higher penalty on this prostitute or whoever, uh, that this particular one was dealing with prostitutes, um, and how much punishment they should have. I don't think it's that they're thinking about death, I think they're thinking about you know, the immediacy of the justice needs to be implemented now, hmm. which is the other problem with religion in heaven that I uh, bothered about morally is that, you know, we want justice now in, the, in, in this world. And the idea that, well, with heaven and hell, we're going to things, everything will be settled out and all moral scores will be uh, taken care of in the next world. I don't think this is a healthy way to live, as, to construct a society. We, right. we want justice now, and healthy justice, restorative justice, right. not retributive justice. Right. Anyway, so and it defers, it, it allows those in positions of power to continue exploiting the believers, right. because the believers think, well, it'll in the end, 
you know, in the right. hereafter, he'll pay for it. Right. Well, yeah. probably not. Probably not. No. <laughs> so yeah. uh, what about, I, did you look into reincarnation and I, Stevenson's I, have, I have a whole chapter on uh, near-death experiences and reincarnation. Because these are, there's some people that say, well, we do have evidence for the afterlife. Right. People have gone and come back. You know, these are called, you know, near-death experiences. So I have a whole section on that, why these are not reliable. Uh, stories that we hear um, going you know, toward the light and all that. Yeah. Well, there. What do you make are, of that? That's a, uh, a easy to replicate physiological? through oxygen deprivation. Right. You know, accelerate these pilots. Is the guy, is the guy in Montreal with the, the yes, brain yes, machine uh, that induces religious it, it, experience? That, that's right. Yeah, the God Helmet at yeah. Laurentian University. Yeah. Um, Yes, I, I went and did that. Oh, did you? I, yeah, I strapped on the God helmet. No, no kidding. Yeah, it, wasn't, like? it wasn't anything like what I imagined an ayahuasca no. uh, trip to be or anything like that. Right. It was pretty subtle, but, you know, you're in an isolation tank, essentially, not water, but just a big cushy chair, and it's completely quiet, and it's dark, and you got the helmet on. You know, if you sit, if you do that, like with isolation tanks, which I've done, you know, floating, they call it. Yeah. You know, if you're in there long enough, you do kind of start to hallucinate a little bit, or you feel like you're floating, because in that case, you, you are. are floating. <laughs> So it's a little bit like, why, why do dreams often yeah. have a floating component to yeah. it or a flying component? Because right. you're flat on your back, super relaxed, and your muscles are And you're not relaxed. getting input from your sensory right. yeah, system. Yeah. yeah. So the, the near-death experience, um, all the evidence points to it's all in the, in the brain. Because we know you can replicate it through oxygen deprivation by accelerating pylons at a centrifuge. You can do it by stimulating the temporal lobe in this one area, which has been done with patients, mostly epileptic patients that are getting open brain surgery for uh, reasons to stop the epileptic seizures. While they're there, they wake them up and tap around. It's one a way to map what the brain does mm. and there's one area in the temporal lobes where you can get people to experience floating flying you know that kind of thing the white light at the, you know the tunnel and all that probably comes from the the um, visual cortex at the back of the brain shutting down oxygen shutting down like from drowning or heart attacks things like that that lead to that um, so all the evidence points to uh, near-death experiences being entirely in the brain and not uh, an avenue or a, a stairway to heaven Reincarnation, the problem with the reincarnation thing with Ian, Ian Stevens, he's got the biggest data set, is the criteria, the objective sort of operational definition of what constitutes a hit between the story of the person that uh, is, is now dead and details about their life and the details of the person that is now alive, usually a child in India. So it, it appears that most souls uh, uh, hover around the subcontinent of India <laughs> waiting to find a body. It's like th that alone tells us. This Wait is a minute now. <laughs> Come on, that's not a fair critique because India has a has a cultural context that's open to these sorts of things. Yes, that's that's the counter. So yes, you know, right. if you're in a if you're in the U.S. and a kid says, "I remember," it, right? you know, right. the father's not going to call that, that, someone and say, right. "Oh, it, it's a fair, it's a fair it's a fair rebuttal." <laughs> but then there's also the population problem. You know, 100 yeah. billion people have lived before yeah. us. Uh, where are all those souls? If you well, know. according to them, it seems that most of the cases of suggestive of reincarnation are people who died in violent deaths at a young age. Yeah, they're hit by a truck or they're murdered or something like that. So that that. But like I, d I deal one with one in detail to show how these stories, once you deconstruct them, they start to unravel. For example, I was on Larry King live years ago with. Um, 
this young man, well, it was the parents of the young man, James Linegar, uh, who had uh, allegedly was the reincarnated soul of a World War II pilot. Mm. And because he had suddenly started having dreams about fires in a cockpit and he was in a plane and, and he had some names off the top of his head. And, but when I really looked into it, 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 it turns out, well, first of all, young boys do tend to love World War II stories and planes and you know, guns and all this kind of, I was totally into that. And my dad was a World War II Navy um, on a destroyer in the Pacific. So I used to bug him all the time about this. I just couldn't get enough World War II stories. And it turns out this little James Linegar, his parents had taken him to, I think it was in San Diego. There's a naval um, museum. No, it was in Texas, somewhere in Texas, where there was a naval air museum where they mm-hmm. had all these planes. And then he had seen the, one of these planes. It was very much like the plane that this pilot had died in. And his, what, like one of his uncles had given him a book about World War II planes. And he had already had quite a bit of uh, information. So it's entirely possible he had these you know, thoughts as a young boy. And, th- and of course, now at age 10 or so, when he, we were on this show, he had no memory of any of this. Right. He said, I don't remember anything. My parents told me that I had these memories. Like, right. oh, okay. And so when you look at it, and then also like Ian uh, Stevenson, so he had these, like, so what constitutes a hit? So a current person alive has a scar on their side. Yeah. And then the person who died, there was a gunshot wound on the side. Okay, right. how, how close does the scar need to be to where the wound was of the person that died? You know, and, and the operational definition was a little fluid. It's like they were c- counting as hits what maybe I would not count as a hit. It's like a bit of a reach. And then also they don't, they don't tell us the misses. How many did you investigate and there was just no connection or all or the, right. you know, the, the hits were just not close enough so we counted it as a miss. So in that sense, it's like pharmaceutical research. <laughs> yeah, okay. We only hear about the That's positive right. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. The replication problem there. Yeah. 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 You know, so the reincarnation. What about these cases? Um, you know, I, I, and I'm pretty skeptical of this stuff, and I'm certainly aware of the fact that, that there's a hunger to believe these stories, uh, which tends to amplify stories. Do you remember there were there were stories about Audie Murphy? Oh, yeah, Audie Murphy. Yeah, she, the Audie Murphy she was... spoke languages right, that she'd yes. never heard in her life and stuff. Did you look into any of those? Yeah, that's there's whole books about that in the skeptical movement that, you know, that kind of unraveled. That was a lot of hype because there was a movie made about it. Right. And uh, yeah, you know, the languages, okay, yeah, but there's, it's it's more, more like speaking in tongues. It's not a real language. I, I thought it was it, like she spoke in Gaelic or something. Yeah, but it was just babbling. Oh, yeah. okay. All right. Yeah. Well, so these cases kind of unravel. In any case, it, it, back to the who you are, if you're a soul, you're your pattern of information that's you and only you, then what does it mean if uh, some, somebody from the past is now I- inside your body somewhere? Well, where's the soul that's you? Right. Where does it go? Do you have right. two souls, 10 souls, 100 souls inside a single body? And where would that be in any case? If it was your brain, your right. connectome, we can't have two sets of patterns in one brain. What do you think about the Buddhist conception that there's there's the the Michael Shermer who's living this life, and then there's an entity within you that's watching Michael Shermer live this life, that's observing, that's timeless, ageless. Right. Have you have you thought about that conception? It would depend on what it is. I mean, so pe- people like Deepak that are looking for some scientific connection to that idea think there might be a quantum field of some kind that doesn't require a physical... He loves quantum. <laughs> yeah, so all these New Agers love the quantum <laughs> because it's spooky and, and weird. And, and normal people don't understand it, but it sounds scientific. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. I mean, 
there's several theories about this, but but e- even so, if we go back to dualism, you know, that there's some, something that continues on beyond the body. If it was truly just like a quantum field of some kind, whatever that would mean, that's holding the information, uh, like spooky action at a distance, you know, the spin of one electron here affects the spin of an electron could be on the other side of the galaxy right. at, at, the, at the same moment. If it was something like that, that that would no longer be part of religion or the paranormal or ESP. That would just be part of quantum physics and consciousness, something like that. Although that hasn't been explained, right? That's right. It hasn't I been mean, th- this is a thing in science that, that I, I find so interesting that that things can be observed and studied and based upon the observed behavior can be predicted. And then to a lot of scientists, that then constitutes an explanation. Yeah. But in fact, it's not an explanation. Action no. at a distance has not been explained. Right. Gravity right. has not been explained. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yes, it's a little bit of a circular reasoning. You know what? You know why do why do objects fall because of gravity? Well, what is gravity? It's the tendency for objects to exactly. fall. Exactly. Right. Well, okay. So we need something better than that. Right. Yeah. That's not an explanation, right. but it works for calculating because we can right. say exactly what the gravitational effect is between this body right. and that body right. at this distance. So I mean, I find that so much also in. Um, in medicine, aspirin. Nobody knew how aspirin worked right. until the 70s. Right. And yet, it was certainly, it's one of the most prescribed or, or given Yeah, so, so in science, in we, it's okay to say, like what Darwin did with the theory of evolution, natural selection, don't know what the mechanism is. Uh, but it still works anyway because we can observe it. Right. You know, so you have kind of two levels of analysis. Exactly. And yeah. scientists, sci- science can progress along the li- just the first level until we get to the mechanism. It was 1953, Crick and Watson. Here it is. It's the DNA double strand. Oh, okay. So then we, ever since we've been teasing out how that happens. Okay, fine. So there may be things like that with, you know, physics or whatever. There's mm. some level we're going to get to. Like the fine-tuning of the universe. Um you know, one one answer to that, you know, you have all these parameters that are just tuned a certain way. There, there may be some underlying principle we just don't know yet that explains all of them in one thing, just one equation on your T-shirt. Well, that's what Einstein six. was looking for, right? right. With the unified field theory. Right. So we don't have that yet. So there could be something. In other words, the mystery would just disappear. It's not a mystery. Here it is. Boom. Uh, now we can still operate and, and and make our predictions, even even holding the mystery to say, well, we don't know. And in science, it's okay to just say, I don't know. So, you know, back to, to where we started here with this, that, you know, there may be something like an afterlife that you continue on. Um, but bef- before we even look for some quantum explanation for that, what is it that we think that we need to explain? And I don't think we have that yet either on this level. So looking at it in terms of what you were just talking about, where these two levels of analysis in yeah. science, right? Where something can work and we know it works, we can observe that it works, but we don't know how it works. Right. And we don't really need to concern ourselves with that initially. Right. I think you, you mentioned earlier, uh, Deepak saying some things about how a belief in the afterlife reduces stress. And I think that's been pretty well yes. documented yes. in yeah. scientific studies. Uh, people with strong religious beliefs uh, tend to be nicer to each other. They have lower stress. They have higher life satisfaction, uh, ir- uh, unrelated to their economic status. Um, in fact, I think the happiest countries <coughs> in the world tend to be those that have high religi- re- religiosity and low income. 
Uh, well, but except well, but except for like the northern European countries like Sweden and Denmark, and oh, yeah. uh, you know they have uh, super they low. Have the level. opposite, but but yeah. there, see, their government is but doing very what religion high suicide rates too up in those countries. Do they? Oh, oh, Sweden and Denmark, yeah, very high. Well, they need more sunshine. That that could be it. Yeah. <laughs> but in their, this case, the government is acting like a religion, as right. you know, we are taking care of everybody. Yeah. Uh, in in, in yeah. a way, that's what religions do in America. You know, they privatize social security and welfare. Yeah. Um, well, and, and they offer the community. But but what I was going to say is, it, it almost makes sense from a scientific perspective to say, well, belief in the afterlife works. <laughs> we don't need to know how yes, or why. Yes, yes, yeah. So let's believe it. Right. That's what we're doing with gravity, right? Right. Okay. <laughs> the, I, I guess my, the problem I would have with that is that I, I don't want to believe things just because they make me feel better or make me healthier. I want to believe them because they're actually true. So I would need more than that because, you know, from, from so, so what a, a secular humanist would say, I guess, is we can get that by creating a heavens on earth. Now, I have a whole section in the book, in the middle two chapters on the attempts to create utopias and why those right. always fail. But, but don't always fail. Well, <laughs> did you read the the profile the thing in the New Yorker recently about uh, intentional communities? Uh, I didn't see that one. I know about intentional communities. It, I would tr categorize them as different. Oh, like well, I visited uh, okay. uh, the Oneida uh, Colony. And... I, I visited the Christiana Colony. I've been there twice in, oh, uh, in, in Copenhagen. Copenhagen, yes, yeah, good place to see, buy now, hash. It, yes, yes, they was for sale right there. <laughs> I had to turn my camera off. They go, no, no, oh, no yeah, cameras, yeah. okay, because technically it's not legal in the in that uh, country but um, but see they're an intentional community like like Esalon Institute which I've been to many times it's a great place to go this is not really a utopia you know there's there's definite rules and so on and also it's in the context of a country you know would it survive without the structure superstructure around it you know, probably and, and does not. utopia cost fifteen hundred bucks a week? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, on. these are that's right. <laughs> it's pretty expensive for utopia. <laughs> these are the limousine liberal utopias. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I guess the, the the idea that of secular humanism, enlightenment humanism, whatever, is that we should create a society in which people don't need to fear starvation and death and so on. We should take care of our poor. And, and, and have like a universal basic income to reduce the kind of anxiety for, that religion seems to fill people with. A lot of people would say that's a utopian impulse. Yeah, but I think it's the kind of thing we've been doing, we've been trying to do, you know, the, the idea of liberal democracies and, and um, you know, taking care of the poor and so on, every, a safety net for everybody. You know, European countries do this pretty well. Yeah. Um, to me, I, you know, again, moving further away from my libertarian past, you know, Germany, where my wife is from, they have a, a pretty good society there. You know, they have universal health care. Uh, you know, you lose your job, we'll, we'll, get, we'll take care of you for your your monthly payments for your apartment and so Five on. Five weeks paid vacation. Yeah, they, they yeah, yeah, maternity Three months leave. maternity leave. Yes, yes. I don't know. Do they have paternity leave as well? Yes, they do. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and still, they're mo the most powerful economy in Europe. So yeah. the, apparently you can do that and not destroy your economy like conservatives in America say will happen. I don't think so. Yeah. And the wealthier, the more uh, prosperity that's produced 
uh, in the world in general, the, the easier it's going to be to do that. They call it the post-scarcity economics or Star Trek economics. There's a book called Treconomics about this. Mm. You know, again, this is kind of like a Kurzweilian thing that, you know, that, that, that if, if we keep doubling the amount of wealth, um, you know, Gates says poverty will be ended by 2030. Not, it, there will be nobody impoverished even in Africa by the UN definition of $2.50 a day or less. Um, so of course, making two dollars and sixty cents a day doesn't make you uh, wealthy, but but the idea is, you know, there's so much prosperity, we can afford a universal basic income for everybody because there's so much wealth. There, I I project that religion would have less of a role, less of a need to think about the afterlife and and justice in the next life and so on because life is so much better here. You know, I, I guess that would be the response to that. The problem we atheists have is that um, uh, you know we can't promise an afterlife. We don't think there's an afterlife. The best I could offer you would say, I don't know. Mm. And that's true. I, I do end the book uh, with some kind of a, a, an uplifting argument for why living in the now matters in, in a kind of a Buddhist way. Uh, but also, uh, whether, the, whether or not there's a heaven or an afterlife, um, the, the, all, all the more reason why we should uh, treat other people with respect, why love is so important now. Um, because I don't know for sure what happens afterwards, and neither do you. No one knows. If we knew for sure, we, I wouldn't have to write books like this, and there wouldn't be these disputes between all the major religions on who gets into the afterlife, what the afterlife is like, and so forth. Uh, so we don't know. So since we don't know, either way, atheists or theists, we should uh, continue to work to make the world a better place now in the here and now. I'm going to end it there because you just summed it up beautifully. Okay. Thank Sounds you. Sounds good. You're welcome. Really good. <laughs> All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Seemed like a, kind of a positive take on things for a guy who doesn't believe in heaven. Uh, pay attention. You know, love is important here. It might not exist anywhere else. Anyway, you can support uh, Tangentially Speaking in various ways. Patreon.com allows you to toss a little bit into the kitty every month if you'd like. Plus, you'll have access to bonus material I put out occasionally, like the uh, music episodes I'm going to be doing only on Patreon, only for Patreon listeners to avoid any sort of copyright hassles. That's going to be a separate feed, so I'm just going to do that for people who are on Patreon. Um they host the podcast. They can host audio files there. So I'll do those there. If you like uh, the musical selections that I throw up sometimes, uh, that's a good way to get them. I'm also going to do uh, poetry stuff, and I do some uh, Patreon-only Romas. So people who send in, who are Patreon subscribers, who send in questions, I answer them on those sort of exclusive behind the scenes patreon romas uh you can also use my amazon affiliate link as i mentioned at the beginning small percentage of what you fund of what you spend gets kicked back to me funds which in no way imply that amazon supports this podcast you support the podcast by using my amazon affiliate link at tangentiallyspeaking.com you'll see it there in the margin on the right you just click on that and uh 
Yeah, you can bookmark it or just go through there when you're going to go in and buy stuff on Amazon and then I'll get a little uh, cut and it doesn't raise the price to you. Reviews on iTunes are very helpful and wonderful to read when I have a dark night of the soul and wonder if it's all worthwhile. I can just go look and see people say, hey, I love this podcast and I feel better about the world. So thank you. Uh, That intro music is by Basin and Range. The song is called Bright Side of the Sun. You can check them out at Basin and Range Band. Band.com. There's a Reddit uh, conversation uh, online. If you do Reddit, I don't know if Reddit is a verb. If you Reddit, Reddit, Reddit. Um, anyway, there are people there, I, over a thousand now, I think, maybe two thousand. I don't remember, but there are a lot of people there commenting on episodes, talking about uh, giving me ideas for future guests, um, asking questions, whatever. I check in there every week or so and um, see what's happening. Uh, there's also Uh, A group online, a a site online for people who want to establish local groups or or connect with people uh, locally who listen to this podcast. It's tspeaking.boardhost.com. And that's broken up into different states. So you can go to your state and and see if there are people near you who are registered there and get in touch. Uh, A listener is running that. I don't I don't have anything to do with it, but. I think it's very cool that people are doing that. If you want any t-shirts from my mom, check them out. She's got a garage full of t-shirts. Uh, and they're all made by Sure Design T-shirts in Thailand. Super great company. It's the only company I... Uh, I don't advertise for them, but I... I'm grateful to them because they've given me great deals over the years. Um, And if you buy anything, they've got all sorts of yoga clothes and travel gear and really cool shit there. SureDesignTshirts.com. Use the discount code CTD, Civilized to Death, and you'll get 20% off your entire order. And now I'm going to play Smoke Alarm, which is by Carsey Blanton. This is a recording she made especially for us sitting in her little studio, I think is her garage in New Orleans, Louisiana. You can hear the birds chirping in the background. I love this song, Smoke Alarm. It's a little reminder that uh, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett and Justin. Miss you guys. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest 
to the ground. 